For our COBT viewers, it's Maynard and Mike with something that's uh, very special and that's something that we feel very lucky uh, to do. Uh, Mark Meaden is with us. He's an executive vice president with the UJA of New York. That's the United Jewish Appeal. It's a, it's a, a consortium, if you will, of, uh, of many different Jewish charities. Uh, it's a great organization. It's one we came across uh, because one of our good friends was getting an award uh, from the United Jewish Appeal, and we, we attended and we started learning more about the organization. We got on their mailing list. This goes back over a year. And then um, on October 7th, when everything started unfolding, all these terrible events in Israel, uh, this was the organization that we noticed in our world that was telling us uh, uh, all the things that we were curious about. And we reached out uh, and we've connected with them. And Mark, we're so pleased uh, that you are joining us um, because uh, as we were saying a little bit in the pregame, um, I think the first thing I noticed was Eric Goldstein, your CEO, sent out a message. He was on the ground there in Israel. And then your organization immediately, I think, advanced $10 million to try to help uh, with a number of things. But we just feel very lucky to get to talk to you and to get to understand and help our viewers understand a little bit more about what's really happening and all the implications and, and where it may go from here. So thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's an honor for me to be part of your program. I look forward to educating and sharing, but most importantly, inspiring people to take action. This is a time when the good people of the world need to stand up and identify good from bad, right from wrong. There is no equivocation about the horrendous, horrific, barbaric terrorist incident that occurred last week, the single worst day in Jewish history since the end of the Holocaust in 1945, the single worst day in the history of Israel since its founding in 1948, and frankly, the single worst day for Western democracy in, in the last 50 years. If we look at this in a 9-11 comparison, this is 15x what 9-11 was to America. And so this is a time where people need to understand the gravity of the situation, the gravity of the threat that Islamic fundamentalism, Iran and its proxies, Hamas and Hezbollah, pose to the world today, particularly for people in the energy industry to understand the potential global implications of this action. And it's time when good people need to take a stand and stand with Israel, with the Jewish community, with America, and with liberal democracy and Western ideals. And so I look forward to this day with you and to be able to educate your viewers. Well, we really feel quite privileged to get to visit with you because um, you obviously have a lot of important things you could be doing, and the organization is is doing so many things. I was mentioning just as we um, uh, before we got started, I listened to one of your calls this morning. Uh, you've been doing a great job, uh, and people should go to the webpage. We'll attach a link, uh, but your webpage has a lot of very educational things. It's keeping people posted. It's also really easy to make a donation. Um, we just did it here at Veriton, so we want to encourage uh, others, please, uh, please donate. But um, tell us a little bit about what's going on on the ground. Everybody's watching the news story. Um, what is the news not telling us or, or give us just a, a better sense of the of the reality of, of, of life right now in Israel? Look, I think the first thing that's important to understand is the size of Israel. Israel is a country smaller than the state of New Jersey. 
I think there are people in Texas that own their own ranches larger than the state of Israel. Uh, this is a tiny country. So if you think about a country smaller than the state of New Jersey that had a 15x loss of life relative to the World Trade Center, there's not an Israeli, single Israeli, who doesn't know someone that wasn't affected uh, by, by this horrific act. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is Israel's surrounding borders. Hamas, you know, a global jihadist, barbaric terrorist organization living directly next to Israeli communities in the south. Hezbollah, another Iranian proxy that's already began, began firing rockets and trying to light up the northern border, is on the north. Um, Israel is, is in, a, it's in a dangerous neighborhood. And yet the Israelis have lived in a, in a way that's allowed it to prosper and become the startup nation, become a light unto the world, and become a very extraordinarily uh, successful and, and, and fascinating place to be part of. Uh, what happened on the 7th of this month was, was a travesty and a tragedy. The barbaric nature of what these terrorists did, and we've all seen the pictures, mutilated bodies, decapitated babies, families burned to death, uh, 1,400 people killed, over 4,000 injured, and approximately 200 you know, taken hostage is something that no civil society can tolerate. And so Israel, which for the last 15 years since Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip, had been in a little bit of a seesaw battle. Hamas would fire a few rockets, Israel would respond, there would be two or three days of some, you know, hostilities, and then everybody would settle down and say, you know, let, let, you know let, let's get, let life get back to normal. And for a year or two, there would be quiet, and then Hamas would fire more rockets. What happened two weeks ago was, was unconscionable. It's changed the dynamic. It's changed the paradigm. And in the same way that post 9-11, our life changed, you know, you know, in, in so many ways. And America made a commitment to go into Afghanistan and to destroy ISIS. Israel is undertaking the same commitment. Israel needs to bring a sense of safety and security back to the people of Israel. Israel needs to destroy Hamas from top to bottom so that they will never be able to undertake this kind of barbaric terrorism again. And Israel needs to send a message to Hezbollah, to Iran, and to all the other bad actors in the region that you cannot do this kind of terrorism with, without implications. And so we're in a very, very dangerous moment right now. Israel is preparing for a major ground invasion into the Gaza Strip in order to eliminate the Hamas leadership, the Hamas military, the Hamas political uh, leaders. Uh, the, the implications could be profound. We saw yesterday the Houthi militias in a, another Iranian proxy in Yemen fired long-range rockets over the Red Sea, theoretically heading towards Israel. A U.S. warship shot them down. Uh, there, there could be some profound and very, very complicated outcomes. Um, we're hoping that the American presence and the American aircraft carriers and, and fleet that's been deployed into the eastern Mediterranean will be able to tame any ideas that the Iranians or Hezbollah have about starting the northern front. But the next few weeks are going to be a very difficult and very challenging time in the region. So one thing uh, you just referenced it and I, I, sh I shared with our team this morning, I was listening to a um, an interview type call that you did with Michael Oren, who's a former uh, U.S. ambassador to Israel. No, no, for the former Israeli ambassador Sorry, to the former US. Yes, sorry, Israeli ambassador to the US, thank you. And he commented that um, 
that uh, incident you just mentioned, the uh, the missiles that came from Yemen that the U.S. Um, forces shot down, he said, you know, understand what just happened there. The, the U.S. is militarily engaged on behalf of or in, in concert with Israel. Like this has become its conflict and, and the U.S. is now involved and don't, you know, understand what just happened. Yeah, this is a, this was a, a very serious incident yesterday. Um, we hope that there is no further incidents of that kind. Again, the U.S. has no desire to involve itself, but I think it's a really, really important statement of support by the president, by the secretary of defense, by the secretary of state, who, who have all visited Israel in the last week to express condolence, but also the message to the Iranians, don't think about expanding this conflict uh, we're there to support Israel and defend Israel. The last thing anyone wants is for the American boys to get involved in this. Israel has always prided itself on its ability to take care of its own business in the region, and there will be no, you know, no desire for America to get involved. But if long-range rockets start flying, you know, thankfully America is in the region. Uh, you know, I'll say one other thing: there are somewhere between fifteen and twenty Americans being held hostage. What would happen in any other part of the world if 15 to 20 Americans were taken hostage by a terrorist group? The SEALs and the, and, and, and the, the, the this most elite U.S. special forces would be on the ground doing all they can to bring those Americans home. In this situation, you know, the Israelis have said to the Americans, we don't want you to put American lives at risk. You know, we, we need to figure this out. Um, and yet this is a very complicated situation. And we're all praying that those hostages will come home safely. Um, but there are a lot of American lives at risk as well, in addition to the 25 to 30 Americans who were killed in this barbaric terrorist incident two weeks ago. You know, one, one thing that uh, came out initially, uh, Mark, it seemed like in the in the news coverage was it, it seemed uh, Iranian involvement, uh, at least initially, the, the view was it was direct, like, you know, just completely uh, complicit in all this. And then that storyline has drifted away. And I think one of the reasons, one of the things we're all wondering is, is of course, the Iranians and, and does the conflict widen and, and what's going on? What do you have any thoughts on that and, and how this could get worse or just that Iranian yeah. aspect? Yeah, look, it's hard to believe the Iranians are not involved. The Iranians' fingerprints are all over everything Hamas does, everything Hezbollah does, everything the Houthi rebels do in Yemen. And so hard to believe that there, there has been no involvement. There was a Wall Street Journal story the day, day or two after the uh, barbaric terrorist incident uh, claiming that Iranian revolutionary guards had been meeting in Lebanon with members of Hamas. Uh, no one's been able to fully verify that story. The story kind of came and went pretty quickly. Uh, so the, the the perception that the Iranians had overt involvement in this has not bubbled up. The, you know, none of the intelligence agencies are claiming that. But at the same time, it's impossible to believe that the Iranians were not involved, if not explicitly, then implicitly in supporting it, in giving it a green light, and in encouraging Hamas to do this. Now, if you want to be really conspiratorial and think about who are the big winners right now, the Russians and the Iranians. America's eye has been taken off of Ukraine. You haven't seen a story on Ukraine on CNN or the New York Times or, or your local news channel in the last two weeks. So the, Iranian, the Ukrainian story is kind of off the front page as the world focuses on this. 
Putin and the Russians win on that level. Israel and Saudi Arabia were very close to you know, announcing some type of normalization. That has been set back significantly. The uh, Abraham Accords are on a much shakier ground right now. Who wins in that scenario? The Iranians. What have we seen happen in the past year? Iran, Russia, China, all kinds of improvements in relations between the three of them. So, you know, there's no evidence uh, that I'm aware of. But if you look at who are the winners in this in this entire situation, the Russians, the Iranians, and the Chinese are all smiling right now, while the Western world is really, really concerned about what this means for us. So, so maybe one one question for you about what the environment is like inside of Israel, uh, because uh, again, to, you know, to think back to the 9/11 example and what 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 the U.S. went through, there was this sense of like, uh, you know, this terrible thing has happened, and now there may be other, you know, people loose in the country who, you know, like. Is it secure in Israel? Like, how do people feel that obviously what's coming in, in Gaza is or is already happening in Gaza is huge. But what about in Israel right now? How how safe is it? How safe are people? What What's the situation on the ground? Israelis are very, very nervous at the moment. Israelis are very concerned and no Israeli goes to sleep at night easily at the moment. Uh, the size of Israel is so small, as, as I said earlier, when you think about what just happened, these terrorists in Gaza broke through a fence and they were a hundred yards to a kilometer away from all of these communities. This is not like Texas or, or Oklahoma or the United States, you know, where, where there's vast space. You know, there's no terrorists that can break through, you know, a Canadian border or a Mexican border and be literally in, you know, in, in, in our cities and towns, you know, with, within minutes. So Israelis are feeling very insecure. I think there was a huge intelligence, military, and, op and operational breakdown by the government of Israel, by the military of Israel, by the intelligence community. I think there's significant work that needs to be done to repair a sense of trust that the people of Israel will have in their government and their military's ability to keep them safe. The trauma has been massive. The psychological impact that this is having on the people of Israel is huge. And there's real concern about the safety of, of, of the country. When you think about this is happening in the south, and yet Hezbollah rockets have, have been shot towards Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. There's not a person in Tel Aviv or a person in Jerusalem, the two largest cities in Israel, that are not concerned about a rocket attack. They have not had a, a rocket alert and had to go into a bomb shelter in the last two weeks. The northern part of the country is under is under threat from Hezbollah rockets. So there's really no part of Israel today where people feel safe and secure and aren't concerned about at any moment hearing the siren that forces them to run towards a bomb shelter. Every single Israeli home has a bomb shelter built into it. It's kind of crazy to think about that. You know, none of us are living with bomb shelters in our homes. None of us are living with secure rooms in our homes. So there's a real sense of of unease in the country right now. The, the trauma and psychological impact of this has devastated the country, and it's going to take some serious rebuilding to bring back a sense of safety and security. People are hopeful that when this war is over and Hamas no longer exists, and Israel has sent such a significant message about their ability to protect themselves, that that will create a deterrent factor for, for many years to come. Uh, but between now and then, 
Uh, there's going to be some ugly fighting in order to achieve that goal. And and maybe just while we're talking about sort of life on the ground in Israel, be a great time to talk about what the UJA is is doing there. I, I mentioned our, literally the first communication I saw was you you had advanced ten million dollars like immediately to try to help, and I think I heard on the call this morning a hundred million has been raised, and uh, I think twenty nine has been put to work, but tell us about some of the ways in which you're getting involved in helping. Sure. So UJA is the single largest Jewish fundraising organization in the world. We have three basic principles. We raise money to care for people in need. We raise money to support Jewish identity and Jewish community. And we raise money to build a sense of global Jewish peoplehood by connecting Jews in New York with Jews in other parts of the world. We raise between 225 and $250 million annually purely from the Jewish community in New York, a truly monumental amount of money. And, uh, and, and the impact of our work and our footprint is profound. When this crisis happened last uh, two weeks ago on Saturday morning, we immediately convened a meeting of our executive committee on Saturday afternoon. The first time in our history we had ever done that. Saturday is the Jewish day of rest, the Jewish Sabbath. Religious Jews don't work on, on a Saturday. And so we've never before had, a, had an official meeting of the organization on the Sabbath. Beginning to sense the gravity of this in the morning, although still having no clue how serious this incident was, we had an emergency meeting Saturday afternoon, and we immediately got permission from our endowment and voted, our executive committee voted to authorize the release of $10 million from our endowment so that we could immediately put that money to work. Unfortunately, Sunday, the banks are closed. Monday was Columbus Day, the banks stay closed. So we couldn't wire the money into the field until Tuesday morning. But but on Tuesday morning, $10 million was wired out into the field, and we've subsequently allocated $29 million in the last two weeks. We've allocated this money into a number of different priority areas. The largest priority area has been support for residents of southern Israel. There are multiple small communities and, and organizations working in the southern part of Israel. So we've put about $8 million to work already supporting frontline organizations and frontline communities. We've put about $3 million to work to support the hospitals in the south. There are two major hospitals in the southern part of Israel. Uh, Barzai Hospital in Ashkelon has actually taken a direct hit from one of the Hamas rockets, but the volume of patients that these hospitals have seen is beyond anything they were ever equipped to do. So we're supporting the hospitals. We're, we put millions of dollars into support the frontline responders. The Israeli version of, of the you know of, of the Red Cross, the ambulance services, the the organizations that provided the first line of, of response from a medical perspective. There were thousands and thousands of injured people. Again, their their resources have been depleted. They're working overtime, so we want to be supportive of them. We put a few million dollars to work already in the area of trauma care. The impact psychologically that the people of Israel are feeling, particularly the children, is profound. And so how do we, how do you account for that and how do you provide trauma support? We've had, we've been supporting relocation. Over a hundred thousand people had to relocate out of their towns and their neighborhoods to, to other parts of Israel. So we put millions of dollars to work in supporting the relocation efforts, travel, food, housing, and clothing. Think about the thousands of people in those southern communities that left their homes with nothing but the clothes on their back to escape this, these barbaric terrorists who were ramp rampaging through their communities, 
the lucky ones that were able to get away got away with the clothes on their back. And so been a huge, huge investment in supporting relocation needs. Uh, we made a $2 million contribution to the Victims of Terror Fund. There's a global organization known as the Jewish Agency for Israel, which is an, uh, an organization based in Jerusalem that represents the Jewish communities around the world. They maintain a Victims of Terror Fund. So anytime an Israeli is a victim of an incident of terrorism, they, within 48 hours, they visit the family and they provide a, a financial check from the global Jewish people. It doesn't bring back a lost one. It doesn't repair a bullet hole. It doesn't repair the trauma of, of a terrorist incident. But it's a statement that says you're not alone. The Jewish people globally are here to help you. In the last 20 years, since the Victims of Terror Fund was first formed in 2003, when there was something known as the Intifada, a large uprising within Israel, this terror fund has served 10,000 people in 20 years. In the last two weeks, they've served 5,000 people in two weeks. Almost half the number of people in 20 years have now been served in two weeks. And so we made a $2 million immediate contribution to the Victims of Terror Fund to ensure that there was enough resources for all the Jewish agency employees to go out and visit all these victims and provide some sense of compensation. We've also provided about a million dollars to support the needs of Israeli Arabs. There's a large community of Bedouins and Israeli Arabs, Arab citizens of Israel who live in the southern part of the country who've also been affected. And so we cannot ignore the needs that they have. Holocaust survivors have profound challenges. Many of the Holocaust survivors living in that part of the country are people in their 80s and their 90s who don't want to relocate. They're too old, they're too feeble, and they, and they don't want to be relocated to, to safer parts of the country. So they've stayed in their homes in the southern part of Israel. So we're providing additive services to people like that. Uh, it's just, a, it's just a, a basic overview of how we put you know, $30 million to work in the last two weeks. We've received pledges of about $105 million already, which is truly the most profound act of generosity we've ever seen to raise that much money in two weeks. But most people see this as an existential threat to Israel. They've seen barbarism and terrorism that's worse than anything we've seen happening in a Western society since the Nazis and the Second World War. And so our community has been extraordinarily generous, providing huge amounts of money. And in the coming weeks, we'll be allocating tens of millions more to provide services in all of these areas that I've described. That was a great run through. Thank you for doing that, uh, Mark. Um, you know, question for you. Um, do uh, do you think uh, Israel, do they really uh, feel the support of the world? Do they feel the support of the U.S.? What What is the, um, what is your impression on how the world is doing um, you know, uh, standing up uh, for Israel? Uh, not well, not well. Um, I think the most important thing we can do and the most important message I can deliver today to you and to your viewers is recognize right from wrong and stand up for right. Two days ago, when a Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorist fired a rocket at Israel and it dropped out of the sky and landed in the parking lot of a hospital in the Gaza Strip and killed a couple of hundred people, the world blamed Israel. The Palestinian Ministry of Health and, and Hamas announced that it was an Israeli rocket that had landed in the schoolyard. If you go look at every major newspaper in this country and around the world, 
They immediately ran a headline, Israeli rocket kills 200 or even even up to 500 Palestinians. Within hours, the U.S. intelligence services, the Israeli intelligence services, the British, the French, the German, had all determined in multiple ways, which I'm happy to share with you, that this was not an Israeli rocket. It was a Palestinian rocket that that veered off course and killed their own people. But the, the public opinion and the world opinion can turn very quickly. There's certainly been tremendous sympathy and compassion for the victims in Israel that we've seen in the Western world. But you know, as the invasion of Gaza begins and as innocent Palestinians unfortunately will die because Hamas uses Palestinians as human shields, they put their offices in the middle in, in the middle of school yards, they put their offices underneath hospitals, they put their offices in apartment buildings, and they use innocent people as human shields. We are very concerned that world opinion will turn very quickly and we're urging people to understand what just happened and how Hamas has brought this on themselves and the Palestinian people are going to suffer. They're going to suffer because of what their own leaders and Hamas have brought on them, not because of the Israeli reaction. How, how do we understand Hamas uh, better? Because I think probably uh, those of us in the U.S., you know, simplistically understand, okay, it's a terrorist organization. Um, it's it's an extreme organization. It's a brutal organization, but it is, uh, as you say, it has embedded itself uh, completely within the um, within Gaza physically. And and how, how do you help us understand Hamas better? What what do we yeah. not know for those of us who are just simplistically it's, understanding it? It's, it's a great question, and I would draw a couple of parallels. How do we understand ISIS? How do we understand the brutality of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and how they took over the country of Afghanistan, embedded themselves in the community, provided social services and health care to the people, but with a vicious, hateful rhetoric and a vicious, hateful ideology that is about killing the infidel. And there are parts of the world today, unfortunately, where that mindset occurs. Think about the war between Iran and Iraq. Two million people died between Iran and Iraq. There was no Israeli or Jewish aspect to that. It was, it was, you know, Persians fighting against, against Arabs. Think about the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. How do we explain why Iraq invaded Kuwait, which brought America, you know, under, under President Bush one into, into the war in that region? Lots of Americans who lost their lives. There's a mindset and a mentality in Islamic fundamentalism that's hard to understand. It's very hard for us to understand how a militant organization can embed themselves so deeply in the population over which they rule with a, with a single ideology to kill the Jews and to eliminate Israel. Most Palestinians living in Gaza are peace-loving people. They want to wake up in the morning, send their kids to school, go to work, fulfill their you know, professional obligations, come home, eat a good meal, and live comfortably. And the overwhelming majority of people in Gaza, I believe, come from that mindset, much like the overwhelming majority of people in Afghanistan weren't members of ISIS or weren't members of Al-Qaeda. But when a, when a hardcore, dictatorial, radical leadership evolves, they intimidate the community. If anybody seeks to speak out, they find themselves dead very quickly. And, and, and in a short amount of time, that mindset and that ideology rules a community. And so, unfortunately, 
the Palestinian people in Gaza voted in 2007 to kick out the Palestinian Authority, the organization led by Yasser Arafat, which had been in negotiations. The PLO became the Palestinian Authority. You know, under, under Yitzhak Rabin, the late Israeli Prime Minister, a peace accord was, was negotiated, the Oslo Accords. A peace agreement was uh, was reached. There were normalization of relations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Initially, the Palestinian Authority controlled both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And when they had elections and the people of the Gaza Strip voted for Hamas, they voted to bring themselves, unfortunately, you know, for them, a, a despotic, dictatorial, sadistic regime, which has now brought all of this terrible destruction to their own community and unfortunately to the people of Israel as well. So Mark, you don't hear much in this conversation, at least we don't, about what's going on in the West Bank. Right. And uh, it, what what would you tell us about that? How should we understand th- their perspective? There's tremendous concern about the West Bank, but I think the, uh, the Palestinian Authority have played a positive role for the most part in maintaining law and order in the West Bank. Uh, as I said, you know, in 2007, Hamas won an election and they turned the Gaza Strip into Hamastan and they've just taken it downhill. The Palestinian Authority are seeking to build a future for the Palestinians in the West Bank. Is, is the situation there idyllic? Far from idyllic. Do, you know, should, should there and will there one day be a Palestinian state with two states living side by side? Hopefully there will be. But, you know, Israel hasn't yet found appropriate partners that they can trust. This incident of two weeks ago will set their trust back by decades. And so the Palestinians in Ramallah and Nablus and Hebron and Tulkarim and Janine and Jericho and Bethlehem in the West Bank, you know, their aspirations for independence have, have, have been set back by decades because of what Hamas did two weeks ago. Um, there is a, calm, a state of relative calm in the West Bank. It's not to say things are peaceful. Every day there are incidents and, and isolated skirmishes between, you know, some uh, small radical groups in the West Bank and the Israeli law enforcement officials. But everybody's hoping and praying that calm will prevail, that the Palestinian Authority recognizes they have too much to lose for themselves and for the people of the West Bank if they allow an uprising to begin in the West Bank. And so uh, the Israeli military, the Israeli law enforcement folks have a very keen handle on it. Uh, there is a an unwritten collaboration and partnership between the Palestinian law enforcement and, and, and leadership and the Israelis, recognizing it's in everyone's interest to maintain calm, to maintain the status quo. And we're all praying that it does maintain that way. Yeah, Mark, I thought it was really interesting early on when you said that, you know, over the last decade or so, you know, the Hamas would throw a you know, rocket here or there, and you know, and that's been going on, and no big deal. I guess my question is: is what happened here two weeks ago that Hamas now said is it just a was it just a breakdown in in uh, in um, just intelligence, or was it more of okay, we've got the you know Abraham Accords, we now have Saudi basically maybe trying to do some normalization with Israel? What really sparked off, you know, sparked that move on their part, in your opinion? That, that, that's the $64 million question, both what sparked it and how did the Israelis miss it? Uh, again, as I, as I said a little earlier, my own analysis is that there was some in, inspiration from the, you know, the Iranians and the Russians. I think things, things were too good. The Abraham Accords have been the most 
revolutionary change in, in the status quo and in, in the Middle East and what it meant for Israel's place in the region. The thought that the Israelis and the Saudis were you know, imminently close to, to, to doing a normalization agreement would have found the region. And I think there were, the Israelis had fallen into a lull. They had developed such a sense of self-confidence that the Gulf states are with us. No, nobody cares about the Palestinians. We're able to make, you know, everybody said, you cannot have peace with the Arab world until you have peace with the Palestinians. And we proved them wrong. The Emiratis, you know, the, the Moroccans, now the Saudis, the Bahrainis, Life is good. Israeli businessmen are traveling back and forth every day. Deals are being done. Commerce is great. The world is opening up to us. And so there was a sense of real uh, lackadaisicalness from the Israelis who, who were asleep at the switch. And at the same time, uh, you know, you have to believe that something ignited the, the Hamas leadership to go beyond their traditional, you know, yearly or every other year, we'll fire a few hundred rockets. The Iron Dome will knock them out. One or two rockets will get through. There'll be a couple of injuries. Maybe an Israeli will be will be killed. Israel will fire some rockets back. There'll be two or three days of skirmishes, and then the Egyptians will intervene, and the Americans will say, "Calm it down," and we'll settle down, and we'll all go back to our business for a while. And you know, you have to question why was you know what happened now that ignited such a different attack. The, the Hamas leadership have never before attempted to broach the security fences and go in and attack and humiliate and kill and murder and kidnap Israelis. And I, I, I posit the theory, the Saudi, you know, the, the Saudi deal uh, just was, was too critical for the Iranians. And so, you know, they green-lighted something like this. I have no evidence, but they had a, you know, there has to be some deep reason why, why this happened at this time beyond the Israelis just getting getting lazy in their intelligence and their military preparedness. Um, you know, I think they were lazy because there was a sense that things were okay. Hamas had no interest in a in a land war with Israel. Um, Hamas doesn't realize what they've what what they've unleashed. They've unleashed the monster, and every member of Hamas will be dead or or in Israel's in Israeli jail before this is over. You know, one of the things that you know we've been noticing here over the last couple of weeks is how relatively calm markets, global markets are to this incident. And it just seems like there's, like you you pointed out a little while ago, that you've got a lot of bad actors that have been sitting on the sidelines. And, and so are we to believe that over the next two, three, four weeks or a couple months, as you know, Israel goes into Gaza, that these bad actors are going to sit idly uh, on the sidelines? It just seems to me that markets are just very, very calm. And that, that concerns us. Does it concern you as well? It does concern me. I, you know, I think uh, the sense of, of tranquility and calmness is what allowed this to happen. Um, I think the fact that the Americans have sent such a massive armada into the region, I, I think, is a very important message. I think the fact that President Biden flew into a war zone and spent six hours on the ground yesterday um, in Israel, a very important message. You know, please God, the markets will stay calm. The markets are generally a very good prognosticator of what's to come. And maybe the markets are telling us that this is going to remain a controlled encounter between Israel and Hamas, and it's not going to expand. Uh, certainly, if, uh, if if we see an expansion of this, if we see an Iranian engagement, if we see, if we see Hezbollah starting to fire long-range missiles, that will certainly impact the markets, the oil markets, the financial markets. You know, hope, hopefully the stability and calmness in the markets is a is a recognition that the American action, the European action and the strong 
condemnation from, from Western democracies and the green light that's been given to Israel to go and take care of its business will you know, in, enable Israel to, to get this done with Hamas and it won't expand beyond that. Obviously, when we had our 9-11, you know, we had a lot of fracturing in our country, and but people came together, you know. Were you surprised on how much people have come out in colleges, in the U.S. Capitol to basically just denounce Israel? I just, it seemed a little overwhelming to me. Is, yeah. Was it overwhelming to you as well? Did you yeah. expect it? It just seems, so, that's so, my concern is that. Yeah. As you, Mike, the, the oldest disease in the world today is anti-Semitism. Yeah. How many times... Have the Jewish people been subject to a ruler who wanted to eliminate them? There is nothing worse than anti-Semitism. You know, if you look at the college campus today, the Jewish community is the most liberal, embracing community of all religious communities in our country today. And yet on the college campus, the Jewish the Jews today are being isolated as Zionists and being extra, you know, excommunicated from all kinds of organizational initiatives on campus. Because they're Jews, and if you're a Jew, you must be a Zionist, and if you're a Zionist, then you then then inherently you're anti, you know, the, the positions of liberals. It's just it's 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 the craziest the craziest um, kind of circular logic that makes no sense. And so we're not so we're heartbroken, but not surprised that so many people in this country, particularly on college campuses, you know, don't understand this. The, the, again, the Palestinian in the eyes of so many is is the troubled. In a poor, weak victim. Now, I mean, I ask you a question. There are two, there are, there are three ways out of Gaza, the Gaza Strip. You can go west into the ocean. That's not really an option. You can go north, or north or east into, into Israel. That's not really an option. Or you can go south into Egypt. Why hasn't Egypt opened the gates and allowed all the women and children to come in as humanitarian refugees and leave the men behind to fight this war with Israel? Egypt doesn't want them. Nobody wants them. The Arab world has no regard for the Palestinians. They use the Palestinians as a tool to quell their own internal divisions by, you know, by, by turning all the anger against against the Jews. Yeah. Unfortunately, in our society, there are just too many people that's, that you know that foster anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. You know, you ask yourself the question when you know when that bomb when that rocket landed. In that hospital two days ago, how quickly every media outlet accepted the word of the Hamas Ministry of Health and said Israel just killed 500 people. You know how much anti-Semitism that spokes. It's just it's it's terrible. Like what, you know, why would the world media do that? Because it's a great story. It's a man-eat-dog story. Uh, you know, big, 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 brutal Israel with their fancy bomber jets, bombers, the F-15s just just dropped a bomb on a hospital. Um, didn't happen. But it's a terrible, me. it's a terrible reality that Jews live with today. You know, there yeah. are many Jews that are afraid to walk in the streets of major cities where even Yamaka today, because yeah. you know you just don't know whether some, some, you know, you walk down the street, or I'm not a religious Jew. I walk down the street. I'm not identifiable as a Jew. But if you walk down the street today wearing a yarmulke, identified as a Jew, you know, you worry. Is someone going to walk? Is some anti-Semite going to walk up and attack you? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a real problem for the Jewish people. But listen, we appreciate good people standing with us and supporting us and recognizing it. Uh, we cannot win this battle alone. We, we need the good people to stand together. You know, Qatar is a name that has come up as being supportive of Hamas. 
And I think that for those of us in the energy world, you know, we 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 think we know a fair amount about Qatar. That I'll just say that was a surprising. We're all used to Iran causing so much trouble, but do you know? Do you have any insights on on that one? What? Why is that? What is the source of so, that? What? So, so, so the, the Qataris have always been problem players in the region. The Qataris and the Emiratis hate each other. The Qataris and the Saudis hate each other. Um, the Qataris, for some reason, you know, have have always played kind of more on the Iranian side of the equation. Uh, the Hamas political leadership reside in Qatar, and so they've always had tremendous influence over over the um, Hamas leadership. There was a story that just broke just short today that two American hostages were released today, and they're giving credit to the Qataris for intervening and getting a mother and a daughter, an American a mother and daughter who were visiting relatives on one of the kibbutzes directly on the border and were kidnapped, um, and uh, they walked freely across the border to come back into Israel today. And so if the Qataris were able to facilitate that, you know, congratulations to the Qataris, and that's terrific. Uh, the Qataris have been significant financial supporters of Hamas, and uh, whereas nobody has dealt with the Iranians, the Qataris have for many years played intermediary every time there has been a conflict with Hamas. So um, it's a part of the Qatari role vis-a-vis the, you know, their position in the Gulf, their relationship with the Saudis, their relationship with the Emiratis. Um, they've been much closer to Iran than any of the other Gulf states have been. And so they've kind of played on that side of the equation. You know, everyone is hoping that the Qataris are exercising as much influence as they can right now to get the hostages freed and, uh, and hopefully to have the, the Hamas leadership, you know, walk out with their hands held high before tens of thousands of innocent Palestinians, you know, may, may lose their lives as Israel seeks to, to capture and, and eliminate the leadership of Hamas. So there is an important role for Qatar to play, and uh, everyone's hoping that they play a positive role. So, Mark, one of the things uh, that, uh, you know, came up this morning uh, on one of, on your uh, informational calls is just that uh, this is, of course, unified Israel. I say, of course, but, uh, you know, it's happened and, and, and people have, have kind of stopped fighting about various things and they're all on the same page. Um, what, and it was sort of brought up as, a, look, this is one of the good things about tragedy is it, is it can refocus people. Are you feeling that same thing in the, in the U.S. community that it's, um, it's reminded people of, of Israel and its, its role in the world and its history, and it's gotten the U.S. community uh, more focused. Tell us about what you're feeling in yeah, the U.S. Uh, discussion around yeah, all this. Okay. That, 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 that's, a, that's a very depressing and sad question, but it's, a, it's an important question. Uh, tragedy should never be what's needed to bring people together. But very often in, in, a, in a broken family, a lot, you know, a tragic loss will bring a broken family together. The Jewish community globally and in Israel has been broken in, in the last few years. Uh, there's been some real uh, internal division between the left wing and the right wing element of Israeli society, much like our own country is broken internally. Our own Congress is broken. Uh, you know, civil society is breaking down everywhere. And the Jewish community and Israel have not been immune to that. So there's been a, there's been a real division, a very painful division within Israel and a very painful division within the Jewish community in America. Some of it driven by American politics, some of it driven by different allegiances in Israel. That division evaporated 
you know, on the day that 1,400 Jews were murdered. The Jewish people have never been more united, have never been in, in a stronger coalition together. The, the political system in Israel came together and they formed a coalition government in order to show a united front from a governmental perspective. People that were vehemently opposed to Prime Minister Netanyahu and were leading the, the protests every week with 150,000 people out in the streets of Tel Aviv protesting every Saturday night are now the most, you know, the most vocal supporters of the government in ensuring that the people of Israel get the support they need. The American Jewish community is coalescing. Synagogues are packed. Synagogues will be full tonight with people coming together to pray together and stand together. And yet at the same time, anti-Semitism has never been, has never been more virulent. And people are very concerned about the, the atmosphere on college campuses, the atmosphere in our community. Uh, there have been multiple incidents of anti-Semitism around the world. There's a lot of intimidation going on on the college campus. And so the Jewish community needs to stand strong and needs allies. They need, we need good people outside of the Jewish community to stand up and say, we're with you. We support Israel's effort to protect itself. We support Israel's efforts to eliminate Hamas. And we'll, we will not allow anti-Semitism to take hold. I'll tell you a really beautiful story. Yesterday, the Archdiocese of New York, under the leadership of the terrific Cardinal Dolan, decided to make a very significant financial contribution to our emergency fund, much like Veriton did, and we thank you for your contribution. And so Cardinal Dolan made a $50,000 personal contribution, and the and the, uh, the the Archdiocese made an additional $100,000 contribution from their endowment fund for a $150,000 gift. And in addition to that, every parish in the New York Archdiocese this Sunday will be urged to have to have their clergy reach out and encourage their congregants to stand up for Israel and to make a contribution to a special fund that the New York Archdiocese is establishing to raise money to come to the UJA Israel Emergency Campaign. That's the kind of leadership we need to see people undertaking. We need to see leaders in our community standing together and saying, this is unacceptable. We need to support Israel. We need to support the Jewish community. I don't know whether you're a Fox News watcher. You may have seen on Fox News over the last week and on, and on the MLB games on Fox and on the, and on NFL games. Fox News made a $1 million contribution to UJA's emergency campaign. And every, every night and during every sports game, every 30 to 45 minutes, they run a, they run a short little, um, public service announcement saying, support the people of Israel, give to the UJ Israel emergency campaign. When, when they first began that last Wednesday, our entire network crashed. There were so many people going wow. online uh, that, 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 our, that our network crashed. We had never had that many people trying to log in to the UJ website. And so we need corporations and good people, media companies, public officials, sports officials, to stand up and say, we stand with the people of Israel, we stand with the Jewish community, we've got your back. And for those people that are interested in supporting, please go to www.ujafedny.org, look for our website, learn more about the issues, understand what we're supporting in Israel, and be as generous as you can. Well, Mark, I, I this has been so kind of you to spend this time with us. Um, we, there's so many other things we could talk about, but I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that 
we just ended on something which is so positive. It's where we should end. And also you and the organization have things you need to be doing. So I just want to say thank you and, and we're with you. Support the message and we're excited to get this out to our community and and um, you know all our best to to all of you who are doing so many good things to help. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to thousands of people in a community who don't normally hear from a Jewish perspective, who aren't that linked into the issues in Israel. A real privilege for us and a real testament to you, to your personal leadership and to your company's leadership in opening this issue to the people that are part of your network. We need more people sharing this message in their own communities and educating so that people can be inspired to do the right thing at a time when the world needs to stand united against evil terrorism. It'll only happen if people understand the issues. And so I thank you for the privilege and honor of being able to share this message with your community. Well, you're much too kind. Thank you, Mark Meaden, and thank you to all our friends uh, watching this.